0: Hello everyone and welcome to Life Hacks for Working Moms, the podcast that helps you overcome the overwhelm, embrace the chaos, and cultivate a life you love. My name is Megan Strand and I'm so excited to be here with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. As you know, this month we are talking about parenting and waking up to realize that you are a parent in charge of another human being's life is typically a pretty life-altering experience. And while our Facebook feed tends to show much of the joyful, silly, happy, and proud sides of being a parent, what we seldom admit to ourselves, let alone to our social circles, is that parenting can be hard and is not always a whole lot of fun. My guest today is Jennifer Senior. She's author of the much acclaimed book, All Joy and No Fun, which was named one of Slate's top 10 books of the year and was on the bestseller list for seven weeks. And I can almost guarantee that reading this book is going to make you feel about six degrees closer to sanity because it is such an honest, fascinating look at modern parenting. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, what a nice thing to
1: say. Six degrees closer to sanity.
0: Well, that's what it made me
1: feel like. I bet you get that a lot, right? Um... Well, why, yes, I do, she said immodestly. I mean, no, you know, um, I mean people do say things like, "Wow, I read that and I felt so much less alone. I felt suddenly like I was not out in some far icy end of the bell curve, but kind of in the that plump center, you know, I do get that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, and and so in that sense, yes, yes. I mean, framing it as something that like helps your mental health, I love, and I do get that. That like you know, I get it, it's sort of in the form of though you know, I'm not a freak. Thank God, I'm not a freak. Yeah, and I think
0: there's I think there's a lot of that go- that goes on as far as comparison parenting. But
1: tell me what compelled you to write this
0: book in the first place?
1: Yeah, so it's a good question, and um, people sometimes assume that I wrote it the minute I became a mother um, or that m- parenthood is what sent me in this direction. And it's not weirdly, strangely, interesting. Um, yeah, no, I know. So so here's what happened. Um, I've been on staff at New York Magazine for, you know, approximately forever, you know, just for a really, <laughs> really long time. And in, I guess in 2006, I did one of my first social science stories for them. And as I was doing all this research, I came across this finding in social science that kids do not tend in the main to improve their parents' happiness. They tend to, if anything, compromise it, or they're a neutral, you know, they're a net neutral, or they're a slight compromiser of our well-being. And this is a very robust finding. It's, it's not like a one-off. It's in every silo of social science, you find it over and over again. People find it when they're out looking for it. And when I read that, I didn't even have a kid, but I wanted a kid very much. And you know, this is a kind of mind-blowing thing to read. If all you want in life is a kid, right? So, um, what I sort of thought was, well, that demands interrogation. You know,
0: absolutely. And, yeah,
1: and I probably would have done it then and there, were it not for the fact that I thought that there would be this huge credibility gap between me and my readers if I wrote this. Oh. As a So there you go. So I became a mother two years later, and then two years after that is when I finally got around to saying to my editors, hey, can I, like, write something about this? So that's when it happened.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So talk, dig a little bit more into that for our listeners. Parents are not necessarily happier than other people in the population. Why is that? Like, what is it that that people have studied and what sort of rises to the top for you in terms of stories you've heard or examples of this that can illustrate that point for us?
1: Right. So, I mean, I think that you can safely stipulate that it's not kids who are the problem. Right. I mean, there are certain irreducibles about raising kids like sleep deprivation and in the early years, you know, boredom, you know, the chronic negotiations. I mean, there there are certainly um, things that can be enervating. But um, I think that, you know, in the main, the things that kind of compromise our well-being have to do with how we parent now and what parenting has become. And in the book, I mean, the book looks at this chronologically, sort of, you know, how kids affect us at every single stage. You know, I try and look at things in reverse and say, okay, how do kids affect their parents? You know, so I look at kind of the early years and the middle years and then sort of the adolescent years. But I think if I were going to speak broadly, what I would say is that parenting has changed in three big ways, and all three of them have the potential to compromise our well-being. So, I mean, I can go through them systematically and tell you, I mean, but in in brief, you know, I think that the fact that we have a lot of choice has made things very different for us and and in some ways has caused us a lot of distress because we now have our kids late in life. You know, if you have a college education, odds are you're going to have your first baby at 30.3 years old if you're a woman and 32.3 if you're a man. And what that means is that you have this exquisite sense of the before and the after, right? There's this, you know, intense kind of contrast for for starters. And also, you know, you're assigning a lot of weight to this um, decision, you know, and you're a lot of you're assigning a lot of expectations to having a, you know, having children, um, if you defer having kids. So that's going to freight the whole experience in a very different kind of way. So that's number one. Um, Number two, women are working. So, you know, because we work different, I think we parent different, but also we haven't adjusted to this. We uh, we are profoundly maladjusted as a culture to women being in the workforce, and we have neurotically contradictory ideas about this. So um, that creates an unbelievable amount of stress at home because no one knows how to divide the chores now right. that women are working. Right, right. So you know, there's a ton. I mean, if anybody ever tells you that the biggest source of marital stress is like money or sex, <laughs> it's not. Know that that's a lie. You know, <laughs> no social scientist has ever found this. It's it's divisions of labor, right? So that's a big problem. And then I think also, you know, the, the way we work now, the fact that we work twenty four seven. You know, that there's this kind of. Work life interference constantly with like paying cell phones and stuff. That doesn't help. But also, because going back to the fact that women work, um, because people are unresolved about this, what it means is that women are furiously overcompensating by spending tons of extra time with their kids. Right. Right? So, you know, we put all this immense pressure on ourselves in order to be like superlative mothers because we don't feel like it's, you know, okay to also leave the house in the morning and earn our keep, which is kind of bananas. So we now spend more time with our kids than women did in the 1960s. Um, True story. Even if you work, you spend more time with your kids. than. That's That's
0: amazing. And I love how you point out that back, I think it was, I don't know, it was 50s or 60s, somewhere back there, that then the status of a good wife and mother was a clean house and there were all sorts of products and that was the societal pressure. And now it's about motherhood and...
1: Raising these super kids. Exactly, exactly. And what were you called back then? You were a housewife back right. in the 50s. Right and now
0: you, now if you're at home, you're a stay-at-home mom.
1: Exactly. Emphasis on the word mom, because you have to be a perfect mom. Right. And it's interesting, too, because if you look at the like time you survey data, you can sort of see what women were doing back then. They weren't spending a lot of time with their kids. Like, Entertaining the 50- their children. <laughs> No they, were, no, they were putting their kids in play pens and telling them to go off and ride their bicycles and come home at six after they'd like banged a gong. But what they were doing, if you look, is they were, they were devoted to that house. They were buffing the floors to a high shine. They were making sure that there was no more ring around the collar. They were making these perfect dinners, right? And now none of us can cook and our houses are filthy, but we're playing with our kids. So it's, it's very different. Um, That's <laughs> awesome. That. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing that I talk about is the fact that, you know, kids have lost their economic function, right? I mean, they used to work and they used to benefit families, but now, you know, we work for them basically. And we are in this business of aggressively cultivating them and driving them all over creation, you know, just to make sure that they get this toehold in the shrinking middle class. So, um, You know, and we don't know what the future is going to look like. So we, as good parents, you know, we feel obliged to sort of do everything we can prepare them them for everything just in case, just in case.
0: I thought it was so fascinating that you pointed out that as parents, we have so much less focus now back in the day. If you were a rice farmer, you were raising your kids to be rice farmers. If you worked in industry, you were raising your kids to work in industry. Now it's this nebulous goal. We want our kids to be happy and what what does that mean? So, I, talking about hedging all your bets and making sure that you know your kid is in chess and language and sports and whatever else and succeeding academically, that's a full time job.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. And here's what's so interesting about all that. I mean, so Margaret Mead was the person who pointed this out. Oh, and right, right, right. Yeah, being so being an anthropology major, I was very excited about like reading Margaret Mead's um, observations about Americans and. Her whole point, I'm so glad you brought that up, because it's like my favorite little factoid in the book. Her whole point was that in other cultures, back when she was doing her research, in other cultures, you raise your kids to be just like you. So if you were an an English aristocrat, you raise your kid to be another aristocrat. And if you were, as you said, like a rice farmer in India, you you raise your kid to be another rice farmer. But what she pointed out is that in the United States, There are no folkways or traditions for people. This is the great thing about the United States. This is what makes us wonderful. But it also means that as parents, we're flying totally blind because we're not the guardians or custodians of all traditions. We we don't have anything to guide us. So she pointed out that American parents were going to be like hopelessly and pathetically beholden to fads, that we would be very vulnerable <laughs> no, to whatever no. new fad came down the pike. Which And she wrote that in 1942. And That's think crazy. about how true that is right now. Oh my that, gosh. Yeah, because there's no folk ways to guide us. So if some year someone says that um, attachment parenting is really the only way to go, we do it. And then three years later when they say no, don't bother with that because your kids won't be resilient, we stop. Or someone will say Here's something state of the art for you. It's called Gerber's. It's jarred baby food. It's perfect. Saves you time, mom. And then, you know, a generation later, we hear, oh, don't do that. Make home-milled organic purees. They're the only way to go. So then we do that. Even though we know that an entire generation has grown up and started businesses and taught sunday school and done nobel prize winning science like having eaten gerber's we can't do it we can't bring ourselves to do it because it's not state of the art so we are sort of again vulnerable to whatever wisdom we're told which is so i mean it's mind-blowing and yes and you pointed out something else which is that um we used to have, like, other responsibilities towards our children. You know, we would make their food, we would, we would grow their food, we would make their clothes, we would teach them, we would give them moral instruction. And as all of our jobs got outsourced to industry and to public schools and to hospitals or whatever it was, um, our only job became to prepare them for the future. So, like you said, that we take them to chess and to soccer and to violin or whatever it is that we're doing, and we somehow became responsible for their self-esteem which is really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to be responsible for your kid's happiness.
0: Well, and this is more, more true for middle and upper income families, correct?
1: Correct. Well, I mean, I'm sure everybody worries about it. You know, I think that if, if you're lucky enough to be in a position where many of the other things are taken care of, then you're going to spend an awful lot of time fretting about your child's self-confidence um, because you already know that they're fed.
0: And you don't have to grow their food or make their clothing.
1: Right. Unless and you really, and, really, really well, want to. <laughs> if you're talking about middle class and upper middle class, you know that their health care is taken care of. Yeah. You know that, like, certain fundamentals are sort of assured. So what you do is start reading, you know, book after book about how to take care of their self-esteem. But there used to be a time when that wasn't your primary concern. Your concern was making a moral and ethical child and a child who was productive and a child who contributed to the community that you were in and that they were going to be in, too. And you wanted to make sure that they knew how to do, yes, I mean, if you go far enough back, you wanted to make sure that they were trained so that they could inherit your farm you know, or your blacksmithing shop or whatever it was. But now, you know, you're raising your kid to be very different from you, to in fact um, outpace you and do better than you. Um, and so that means doing a lot of things that you, whose value is uncertain like teaching them Mandarin, which I'm not doing, but certainly people around me are. You know, um, And, you know, you worry about their self-esteem because that's what's left. Right. That's what's left.
0: Talk a little bit about the roles that women in particular play as it relates to child rearing. You had some really interesting facts in there about some of the logistical things that moms are taking on that dads don't quite take on as much and the implications of, of those things.
1: Well, there's a number of things. I mean, first of all, just speaking generally, women do about twice as much child care as men do. Um, This is according to the American Time Use Survey data. Again, it's not me talking impressionistically. This is in terms of, you know, hundreds of thousands of samples taken from the United States over time. So, um, and what do they do? So, first of all, they do twice as much child care, and then it's the kind of child care that they do. So, for instance, they wake up much more frequently in the middle of the night with their kids, um, three times as much, in fact, and that's if they're working. If they're not working, it's about six times as much. They do more deadline-centered work. So it's generally mothers who think, oh, no, no, the dinner needs to be on the table by 6.30 and the bath needs to be run by 8.30 and I somehow have to make sure that the homework has been done and that the soccer uniform has been laundered and I'm the one who has to drive them to sectionals. They do more of the deadline-focused stuff. Right. Um, they also multitask more when they're in the house. Men multitask when they're out of the house, but women do it in the house. So they're the ones who are... You know, I mean, the the cliche is kind of true. They're answering an email while they're stirring a pot, while they're telling their kids to please finish that thing, that one thing that they still haven't done. You know, that tends to be the way women experience their time is as a kind of subdividing amoeba.
0: And what about... Talk a little bit about, there are a couple of examples in your book that really resonated with me and they sort of had to do with just the differences in parenting and how much more like the emotions weigh on women. And the, the, I don't know if you even use this phrase, but the one that comes to mind for me is, is mom guilt. Just I mean, the way the, the differences in ways that moms and dads parent and how much more mothers internalize that. Can you talk, can you speak to that as oh, well? Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, there are two ways to look at it. I mean, first of all, Mothers are the one who have ones who have like the ticker tape looping through their head all day about um, is everything okay is my kid making friends are they being bullied did I pack a sandwich is I have to uh, call the doctor I have to get them signed up for camp right they assume a lot of the psychological burdens and the like scheduling logistical burdens they also are the ones who tend to fret about whether or not their own parenting is any good they're the ones who seem to hold themselves up to these very draconian imaginary standards sometimes and it might be because they're staring at too much pinterest you know i mean if i could ban pinterest i just just want to say that now i would i never go on i never look never signed in don't have a login have only a glancing and resentful not resentful you know like kind of bemused really like relationship to it um they also there's just all sorts of, you know, like you mentioned the Facebook feed, right? The, the people They're kind of tyrannized by the imagery that they see there. Um, I mean, for a long time, I would watch Friday Night Lights and think, God, Tammy Taylor is a really good mom. And then I have to remind myself, someone made her up. She's not <laughs>
0: she's, real. She's fictional. But
1: she's fictional, yeah. And I mean, I think there's this one couple in my book who maybe you're thinking of. I mean, I talk about this couple named Angie and Clint. And they're... Angie is this lovely mother, and she's a shift worker. She works as a psychiatric nurse she works evenings and she spends every waking minute with her kids until she goes off to work, playing with them, cooking for them, taking them to the park. She's the most immersive parent. Clint is a shift worker he works at the or he did he used to work the mornings at the Minneapolis airport at one of the car rental counters and the second he came home from his morning shift, he had a totally different attitude, which is like, I'll play with the kids for a little bit, but then I'm going to get up and I'm going to make the dinner and I'm going to load the dishwasher and I'm going to do uh, some stuff for myself. If the kids are occupied and watching an Elmo video, why would I care? You know, he's very... Um, you know, like, not why would I care? I mean, he cares deeply about the kids, but why, why would I beat myself up for that? Right, it's, just very they're matter of safe fact. and occupied, yeah. Yeah. it's perfectly okay if I take 20 minutes to myself. And Angie would never do that for herself. And the big reveal for me was I said to Angie at one point, Are you, where do you feel more competent, at home or at work? And she told me it works. And she is a psychiatric nurse. Like, people would bite her, they would kick her, she had, they had psychotic breaks, and she felt very competent around that. But she felt at sixes, at sevens, and sevens when she was at home. Whereas I asked Clint how he felt. I said, where do you feel more confident at work or at home? And he said, definitely at home. And he worked at a desk, basically. And I said, why is that? And he said, because at home, I am the standard and I thought, oh, my God, no woman would ever say I am the standard. Like, they just think that there's some other standard out there that right. they're falling short of. Right. Like, whether it's Tiger Mom or Tammy Taylor, it doesn't matter who it is.
0: Well, and you're, you're very clear in your book to point out that your book is not filled with parenting advice. But I do, you do offer one little tip there. And, it, it, you know, you sort of dip a toe into the advice pool when you say maybe moms could look more at their husbands for parenting role model when it comes to things like being more matter-of-fact about some of this stuff.
1: Right. I think, yes, to the extent that I was giving advice, I was basically saying, look at your husband. He's not beating himself up. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, yes, I'm willing to go there. I mean, I don't have anything prescriptive. I'm not a... I'm not a developmental psychologist, I didn't study this, and also I'm tired of getting told what to do, and I'm particularly (laughs) tired of that plague of contradictory literature where like, you know, I'll be told to do one thing, and then I'll be told to do its opposite by a different book.
0: Somebody else, yep, yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the thing, one of the things that jumped out to me, I was just telling my husband this, you cite a study that I thought was so telling, in which they asked children how they felt about work-life balance and how much more time they felt their parents needed to be spending with them. And it turned out I think it was something like only 10% wanted to spend more time with their mothers, and it was something like 16% wanted to spend more time with their fathers. But a full thirty-four percent wanted their parents to be less stressed. And
1: I just that thought it my favorite statistic wow. in the whole book. Wow. Yeah, so I love you for remembering it. You cited it absolutely perfectly. That is exactly right. 10% on moms, 16% on dads, and 34% of them wanted their mothers to wish their mothers were less stressed out, which to me is the most important takeaway of all. Um, I say that everywhere I go. Just, just. So that everyone's shoulders drops a little bit, you know. And I will say there is a caveat that's crucial for that, which is the kids in that particular sample, and there were a 1,000 of them, so it was a nice size sample, but they were between the ages of, um, they were were 3rd through 12th graders. So I I think that if you ask little, little kids, they love seeing their parents and probably will always say they want to see more of them. But starting in about the 3rd grade, that's pretty much where they fall yeah
0: no I think that's fascinating fascinating and I think it's a perfect way to end our chat together I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your gems of wisdom for those of you who have not read this book all joy and no fun by Jennifer senior it just came out on paperback so absolutely pick it up Jennifer where can people find more about you online if they'd like to do that
1: Oh, it's very easy jennifersenior.com
0: <laughs> excellent you. excellent well we'll definitely put that in the show notes and of course you can find life hacks for working moms at the website lh4wm.com the you can find me on twitter at Megan Strand and you can find the podcast also on iTunes and I do recommend you subscribe to the podcast so on behalf of Jennifer and myself we thank you so much for tuning in today and be well and be less stressed for your kids take care